Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it's time for us to continue our exploration of the history of Warner Media. So in our last episode, I talked about the founding of two major parts of Warner Media, which was uh, Time Incorporated, a magazine publisher, and Warner Brothers, as in Warner Brothers Studios, the film and then later TV and record label studios. I focused a lot on Warner Brothers in that last episode for pretty obvious reasons, but it's time <laughs> to go back to Time Incorporated, that is, for a moment anyway. Now, in the last episode, I said that Time grew as a publisher, adding more publications to its name as it evolved, and that it continued to do so right up to 1989, when it would begin the process of merging with a company that at that point was called Warner Communications. And I'm not going to go all over that again, because it's crazy complicated, and, you know, I just did that in Monday's episode. But one thing I did not cover was Time's own multimedia empire. See, Time wasn't just in the business of publishing magazines, or even those Time Life books you might remember if you grew up in the 70s and 80s like I did, and you saw the commercials all the time. You know, I never did get that series about ghosts, but I always wanted it. Anyway, we're backtracking a bit to the 1960s to talk about another element of the Warner Media empire, and it came to Warner Media through Time Incorporated, and it's a very important piece of that empire. In fact, it's a component that would end up being transformational, so much so that I've done a full series about this company, uh, or rather this channel, and I'm talking about HBO, or Home Box Office, the subscription cable channel best known today for like original series like Game of Thrones and stuff. So since I did a full treatment of this company in the past in full episodes of Tech Stuff, and in fact have aired some of those episodes as classics not not in the not-too-distant past, I, I'm not going to dive into excruciating detail, but we do need to cover some of it because HBO is a really important part of Warner Media today. All right, so let's put ourselves in the mindset of the typical American consumer, uh, someone who watches television back in the 1960s. This person has spent a not insignificant amount of money to purchase a television set, and they most likely get their television using an antenna to tune into over-the-air broadcasts from nearby TV stations. Now, maybe if they live in a rural area or if they're in a really dense urban area with lots of skyscrapers, they would actually be using cable. It was more likely to be in a rural area in the 1960s because, see, over-the-air broadcasts have a limited range, and once you get far enough out from where there's a transmitter, the signal you pick up might be so weak that you can't see or hear anything on a given channel, or it's just, you know, a really poor quality, like a lot of static or whatever. So cable was a way to deliver television signals to distant locations over a physical wire or cable rather than over the air. And by the 1960s, there were more than 600 cable systems in the United States, mostly serving rural areas that were not, or, you know, small towns that were not close to transmitters. 
And the way most of these worked was that you would have a dedicated antenna in a location that could get a pretty good signal. So you might build a really tall antenna at the top of a hill, for example. And then you would pick up signals using that antenna, and you'd send that signal down cables to various households, which had to pay a fee to access the cable feed. But the alternative was to either get really cruddy TV signals or go with nothing at all. So for some regions, cable TV was really the only option if you actually wanted to watch television. Now, it was a guy named Charles Dolan who really pioneered cable for dense urban environments. Like I said, it was already being done out in rural areas, but Dolan was looking at places like New York City. Uh, Dolan had started out as a film editor. He was splicing together stuff like sports films and industrial films in Cleveland, Ohio. But he got a lucrative offer to sell his business, and he took it. Then he relocated to New York City, and that's where he saw the opportunity to potentially create a cable system to serve the needs of folks who were living in downtown Manhattan and lower Manhattan. Many of these people, because of skyscrapers, weren't able to get a good signal just using, you know, antenna. Meanwhile, folks in New Jersey could pick up signals from Manhattan without a problem, so it was really a disconnect, right? You had people living miles away who were picking up signals They were just a few blocks away from Lower Manhattan, and the folks at Lower Manhattan couldn't see anything. Well, Dolan decided to start up a business called Sterling Information Services in 1965, and the company's focus was to provide cable TV service for Lower Manhattan. But while the demand for television was there, the actual reality of wiring up customers was another matter, because... After a massive blizzard that happened in the late 19th century, the city of New York had made a decision regarding infrastructure. You know, back then, numerous utility poles were destroyed in that blizzard, so New York decided to install power lines underground rather than using utility poles and stringing them above ground. Now, that meant there were no utility poles for Dolan to use in order to wire up cable. So... That meant he was going to have to lay cable underground. That is incredibly expensive. The estimates were somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000 per mile of cable. And getting the cable to a customer's location was just part of the problem. Manhattan residents largely lived in apartment buildings. So Dolan would not just have to get the cable to the building. He would then have to install cable into the buildings themselves, you know, snake it up through the structure itself in order to wire up each of the apartments that would subscribe to his service. So by 1967, you know, two years into his endeavor, Dolan had only signed up 400 customers and had spent more than $2 million in the process. And he was losing money at that time. Like he, the costs were, were vastly outpacing the revenue. Dolan got an investor to help offset those costs and that kept him afloat. And that investor was, drumroll please, Time Incorporated. Time, the publisher, was eyeing cable as a possible means of diversifying its portfolio of businesses. And the folks at Time had this feeling that cable TV could become a really big thing. So Time bought a stake in Sterling, which gave Dolan the money he needed in order to stay in business. But Dolan was still having trouble convincing people to actually sign up for the cable service. The content that already existed for TV 
wasn't always compelling enough to convince most folks to agree to a subscription-based model in order to access it. See, the main issue really was that TV content at that time was free, quote-unquote free. Now, I say free because it's free the same way this podcast is free, in that the content on television received revenue from advertisers. Content was ad-supported, in other words. This also gave rise to companies like Nielsen, which created systems that could measure the relative popularity of different programs. That popularity would then lead to estimates about how many people were watching any given show at any given time. Yeah, this was done by projecting numbers. You would distribute a number of devices that would essentially monitor what channel televisions were set at any given time. And then you would multiply that number by a factor in order to kind of project that out to the general public. Not the most precise way of doing things, but it was the only real way of handling it at the moment. So that popularity level would lead to, you know, estimates about how many people were watching at any given show at any given time. And that gave TV executives an idea of what their most popular programming was. That would lead to TV executives being able to negotiate bigger ad deals for the most popular programs. And all of this makes sense, right? I mean, you can ask for a higher price to run an ad during a really popular show because presumably way more people are going to see ads that run on that show than they would if you had an episode of, I don't know, Johnny Tech Boy Talks About Gadgets. Trust me, I should know. Anyway, this sort of set up a general expectation among viewers. TV programming was quote-unquote free. And it's funny because the same sort of thing happened on the internet, right? I mean, people got used to this idea that they could access content on the internet for free, which meant when some companies tried to generate revenue not through advertising, which has its own set of drawbacks, but rather through things like subscriptions or paid-for content, a lot of people balked at that. The so-called paywall became a barrier to entry. And I get it, you're asking people to pay out of pocket for something when there's tons of other stuff out there that does not require that kind of direct investment. It's one of the big reasons we don't go for paid subscription approaches with our podcasts in general. We feel that anytime you put a paywall in front of content, you're going to see a much smaller audience, and we would rather be able to reach a lot of people, because turns out we like people. Anyway, the landscape in TV was that most people were used to getting their programming for free, and so a lot of folks just didn't see the value in subscribing to a service to get something that other people got just by using an antenna. So Dolan would end up doing something that lots of other people and companies had tried before, he would create content that would not be available anywhere else, and the only way you would be able to get it is if you bought into the cable subscription. RCA essentially did this back in the day with radios. The company made radio sets, but it really got into the radio station business largely because it created the demand among consumers to buy the radios themselves, right? Like, you wouldn't buy a radio if there were no stations to tune into. So RCA had to get into the radio station business to create the content so that people would want to go out and buy the radio sets. It's this kind of cyclical approach. Now the story goes 
that Dolan went on vacation with his family and took a cruise to France aboard the ship the Queen Elizabeth II. And on that trip, he came up with this idea for an exclusive channel that would only go to his cable subscribers. And his working name for the channel at that point was The Green Channel. The Green Channel would have to have special programming on it. It had to have stuff that you just couldn't find on over-the-air broadcasts. It had to be set apart with premium content. And this was going to be a pretty big gamble because other people had attempted to create versions of pay TV in the past, and no one had really succeeded at it so far. Now, some of those schemes involved over-the-air transmissions. Those are kind of hard to do as a pay TV service because there's always a chance for people to try and pirate the airwaves and thus watch that precious content without actually paying for it. And because it's over-the-air broadcasts, you would have no way of knowing as a broadcaster that people were doing that, right? I mean, you're just sending a signal out. There's no return signal that tells you if people are, you know, legit paying for your service or if they're just stealing it like the dirty TV thieves that they are. There were also encoding and decoding strategies. In other words, scrambling a signal, which in theory on the other end, when you have a paying customer, would be descrambled to play properly on the television. But a lot of those approaches were really limited and not very good. So there were a lot of legit customers who were getting poor experiences on the other end. Like they were actually paying for the service, but the results were were subpar. Cable bypassed those types of issues, and it had another benefit. Because it wasn't broadcast over the air, and because the FCC was trailing behind technology, FCC restrictions that applied to over-the-air providers did not apply to cable. Time surveyed potential customers, that is Time Incorporated, surveyed potential customers for this new cable service with a premium channel, and the results were not exactly promising. They they looked pretty bad, and they actually did a couple of surveys, and a lot of them looked bad. However, after time suggested that the first month of service would be free and the installation charges would be refundable, they got a slightly better response, though it still wasn't like overwhelmingly positive. It was essentially like a 50% approval. Meanwhile, the Green Channel went through a name makeover. No one had really come up with a killer name yet, so they had a placeholder, a temporary name, and this was called Home Box Office, which everyone was absolutely sure would be changed before it launched, and it totally didn't. Interestingly, when HBO was finally ready to debut, it wouldn't do so on Sterling Communications. That is, it would not be on Dolan's cable network. Uh, instead, it was a community in Allentown, Pennsylvania that Time would choose as the debut spot for HBO, at least initially. Uh, and it was wired up on a totally different cable service that was created by a guy named John Walson. That's the man who actually gets the credit for inventing cable TV in the first place. However, Time then changed its mind, decided to actually pilot the service in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. And the reason for the shift was that some of the programming that HBO wanted to carry happened to be NBA basketball games. But the NBA, like a lot of sports organizations, has a blackout rule. And that blackout rule says you are not allowed to broadcast a game played within a certain radius of where that game is taking place unless that game happens to be sold out. 
this is a way to make sure that venues like stadiums are selling as many tickets as possible. The idea being that if you can stay home and watch the game on TV, you might not make the effort of buying a ticket and going to the stadium. I mean, that would be much more expensive. So these blackouts meant that if you happen to be within a certain region, like a certain range from the stadium, you could not broadcast there. Well, Allentown was a little too close to Philadelphia for that to work out. So Wilkes bar was outside that range. And thus wouldn't have any issues. It wouldn't, it would mean that HBO wouldn't have to go dark for certain types of programming. So time moves the pilot program to Wilkes bar. And again, that was outside of that, that, uh, radius. Now, initially the subscription for HBO to add HBO to your cable plan. If you lived in Wilkes bar at this time was $6 a month. Fewer than 400 people signed up for it when it launched on November 8th, 1972. And the first two pieces of programming on HBO included a hockey game of the Rangers versus the Canucks, followed by a movie from 1970 called Sometimes a Great Notion. The growth of HBO at first wasn't exactly inspiring. Time Incorporated oversaw deals with various regional cable companies, most of them in Pennsylvania, and got agreements for them to be able to carry the channel in return for subscriptions. Customers of those cable companies would still have to add a subscription to HBO in order to actually access that channel. This would go on top of their normal cable subscription. So they're already paying their cable bill. They'd have to pay extra to get HBO. Something that I think most of us are familiar with because that's kind of how it operates now. And this was still a pretty hard sell at that point. There were also other pay cable channels emerging around this time, including one that would be called Star Channel, which was part of Kinney National Company slash Warner Communications uh, within a division of Warner Communications called Warner Cable. Meanwhile, the Sterling Cable Company was still struggling in New York and losing money. The subscriber base was modest and the cost of installing cable in Manhattan had not gotten any cheaper. Time acquired controlling stake in Sterling and then renamed it Manhattan Cable Television in 1973. The growth in HBO largely came from a new method of distributing signals. So early on, the way that Time would broadcast HBO to cable stations is, so they've got their starter signal. They would then send that signal to a microwave transmitter. And you have a tower, a radio tower, that can send out microwave transmissions. This tower would beam out a microwave signal that carries that channel to various cable stations in the region. These stations would receive that transmission using a microwave antenna, and then they would send that signal through their cables to their customers. But this new approach would go much further. In fact, it went all the way out into space. The new approach involved beaming the channel signal up to a communications satellite in orbit, which then could beam down that same signal to a receiving antenna connected to various cable stations. This removed the need to build out microwave transmission antenna across the United States and helped HBO to go national. Now, when we come back, we'll transition over to some other elements that would become part of the Time Warner slash Warner Communications slash Warner Media Empire, and some that would not stand the test of time. But first, let's take a quick break.
HBO would continue to grow year over year. And of course, it got into the business of creating original content on top of carrying stuff like sports events and films that had recently left their theatrical runs. It also created a companion channel that was a slightly lower tier premium subscription channel. That channel was Cinemax, which launched in 1980. Cinemax would focus solely on carrying movies at first, while HBO continued to carry a variety of programming. The reason Time launched Cinemax was primarily to compete with the Movie Channel, which at that point was part of the Warner Amex satellite entertainment venture. The Movie Channel, by the way, would merge with another channel called Showtime, and that new channel would just be called Showtime. Ultimately, Warner and American Express would sell off this joint venture to Viacom. Anyway, Cinemax would go on to experiment with various content over the years, and while from the outside it seemed like it was kind of a competing cable service to HBO, in reality, both entities fell under the umbrella of Time and, after 1989, Time Warner. Okay, so that's the basis of the HBO and Cinemax elements of what is now Warner Media. I'm sure we're going to come back because we are going to have to talk about HBO Max later on, but that's going to have to come in the next episode. And we've got a lot more to cover because there's just so much and it is exhausting. But let's uh, let's take quick stock before we move on. So we're up to about 1990. Time Warner has merged, so Time Incorporated and Warner Communications are now Time Warner, and we've got a true Goliath of a multimedia company, one that would set the stage for other massive media companies in the future. So you had the assets of Time, which included a publishing company with several popular weekly magazine titles, uh, plus books and beyond. That also includes the pay cable channels in HBO and Cinemax, which were now established entities, and they were solid revenue generators by 1990. You had the Warner Brothers movie and animation studios. Uh, Animation at this point was was a little quiet, but they still had them. You also had the Warner Brothers Television Studios. Uh, You still had the Warner Music Group, which was kind of an umbrella for numerous music companies, not just Warner Records. Uh, Warner had sold off its stake in cable channels like MTV, Nickelodeon, and Showtime to Viacom. So those were gone, but the company still had actual cable operations, as in cable service. That is the ability to act as a cable service provider. That was Warner Cable. Oh, and they also owned DC Comics. Time had also acquired a cable service provider called American Television and Communications, or ATC, back in 1973. So Warner Cable became Time Warner Cable after the merger, and ATC became Time Warner Communications. Both of these divisions were then lumped in together into a collected division called Time Warner Cable Group. However, this part of Time Warner would not stick around by the time we get to Warner Media. This is a part of the company that would get spun off and sold off. The Time Warner company would spin off Time Warner Cable as an independent company in 2009, but let's just follow that bunny trail a bit more because it is interesting. So we're going to flash forward to 2013. And in 2013, Time Warner Cable, which remember at this point is an independent company, it's no longer part of Time Warner itself, Uh, it was looking at the possibility of finding a buyer to take over the company. And old TWC founded two suitors in Charter Communications and Comcast. These two companies 
competed for the lovely hand of Time Warner Cable in proverbial marriage, and Comcast looked like it was going to win out. But then the U.S. Department of Justice stepped in and said, hang on, Comcast, if you buy out Time Warner Cable, then you're going to have control of more than half of all broadband connections in the United States. And that's just a bit too anti-competitive for our tastes, which was probably a good thing because Comcast was also building out its own ginormous media empire, which is a totally different story. By 2015, Comcast had enough with all the various inquiries and pushbacks, and they jumped out of the picture. So Charter went on to acquire Time Warner Cable and eventually phased out the branding to merge it with Charter's brand Spectrum. So that former part of Time Warner is now with Charter as Spectrum. Okay, so we've dealt with that piece. What's next? All right, okay. Turner Broadcasting. Yowza. All right, so Time Warner acquired Turner Broadcasting in 1996. But that means we need to learn at least a little bit about Turner Broadcasting. And this is kind of getting into my own backyard here as I live in Atlanta, Georgia. So this is largely the story of Ted Turner. Now, Ted Turner came from money. His father owned an advertising company that actually was mostly focused on billboard advertising. And Ted, after some uh, shenanigans in college that got him booted from college, he joined the family business in 1960. Tragically, Ted Turner's father committed suicide in 1963. And at that point, Ted took over the family business. And the company was struggling at, at that time, but Turner was able to move the business around, get it back on its feet, and made it profitable again. Now, having succeeded at rescuing one business, Turner saw a chance to do it again, but in a totally different industry. So there was this ultra-high-frequency, or UHF, television station out of Atlanta that was having its own financial struggles and was in danger of going out of business. So Turner purchased this company, and within three years, turned it around too. It was making a profit. And in 1975, Turner did something pretty forward-thinking. He made a deal that allowed him to beam this station's signal up to a satellite and broadcast it to various cable television audiences. So not that different from what channels like HBO were doing, only Turner's station was ad-supported, so it didn't require a special subscription. He called it WTBS, or just TBS for Turner Broadcasting System. And Turner reorganized the parent company for TBS and named it Turner Communications Company, later on just changing that to Turner Broadcasting System Incorporated. He launched the first 24-hour news channel, that was CNN in 1980. He also launched TNT, or the Turner Network Television Station, in 1988. Um... Let's see, he bought the Atlanta Braves baseball team in 1976. Uh, he bought the Atlanta Hawks basketball team in 1977. He bought the MGM slash United Artists Entertainment Company in 1986. That included a library of more than 4,000 uh, movies. He did not hold on to that, however. That story by itself, MGM story, that one also will make your head spin, but I'll, I'll not go into a lot of detail here. In 1991, Turner entered a joint venture with Apollo Investment Fund to acquire the Hanna-Barbera studio. Hanna-Barbera was an animation studio um, known for producing tons of famous cartoons, including 
Johnny Quest, uh, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, Yogi Bear, Scooby-Doo, tons of them. He also acquired a lot of other studio libraries. He managed to acquire the pre-1950 Warner Brothers Film Library. Uh, He got the AAP Library, which included some Warner Brothers animation in it, and the Fleischer Studios Library, which included Popeye cartoons, plus lots of other stuff. So he was just acquiring all this content. Uh, He also purchased WCW, the Professional Wrestling Federation, in 1989, But all these acquisitions accrued an enormous amount of debt for Turner. So he also sold off some of them pretty quickly. So MGM UA went fairly early on. In fact, Turner sold it back to the guy who sold it to him. But Turner was holding on to the library of films, uh, which is why the recently announced Amazon acquisition of MGM doesn't necessarily include all of the movies that MGM has made over the years. Because a lot of those rights don't belong to MGM anymore. But again, that's a story for another incredibly complicated podcast episode. Anyway, Turner also oversaw the creation of the Cartoon Network in 1992 and Turner Movie Classics in 1994. He supervised the acquisition of both New Line Cinema and Castle Rock Entertainment, a pair of motion picture production companies. And then we get to 1996. So in 96, Time Warner made Turner an offer he couldn't refuse. It was a $7.5 billion acquisition deal for Turner Broadcasting System. This meant that Time Warner, and thus Warner Communications, and thus Warner Brothers Studio, had a lovely reunion with the pre-1950s Warner Brothers Film Library, because... Turner owned that. So yeah, this particular acquisition also meant that some Warner Brothers rights, which had been sold off years earlier to help cover debt, came back to the entity that first created those works. Sort of. I mean, a lot had changed by then. The Warner of 1996 was very different than pre-1950s Warner, but TBS, TNT, CNN, New Line Cinema, Castle Rock Entertainment, Hanna-Barbera, the Cartoon Network, etc. All of these things made their move over to Time Warner. As did Ted Turner. He became an executive for Time Warner. While the acquisition of Turner Broadcasting System was taking hold, Time Warner also got involved in the launch of a new broadcast television network. That network was the WB, which launched on January 11th, 1995. And this was a joint venture between Time Warner, specifically the Warner Brothers Entertainment division of Time Warner, and a company called Tribune Broadcasting. The WB would stick around a little more than a decade, during which time it served as the launch pad for shows like The Steve Harvey Show, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Dawson's Creek, Felicity, and Charmed, among many, many others. Oh yeah, Supernatural was one of the shows that debuted on the WB, because I keep forgetting that that show was on the air forever. That show, I think it ran 15 seasons, which... I mean, all it did was really teach me that if you hear the song Carry On My Wayward Son, it means that one of two brothers is going to have a really terrible time, and possibly both of them. But as I said, uh, it only stuck around a little more than a decade, so by the mid-2000s, the WB's numbers were in decline. Meanwhile, over at Viacom CBS, there was another network called UPN that was facing a similar situation. Uh, By the way, the story of Viacom and CBS is just as convoluted as this history of Warner Media is. 
Now, both channels, WB and UPN, were trying to compete with Fox, and Fox was performing far better than either of the other two channels. So both the WB and UPN were losing money, somewhere in the neighborhood of like $2 billion total between them. So CBS and Warner Brothers Entertainment decided to join forces rather than compete against each other. Both the WB and UPN would shut down within a couple of days of each other, and CBS and Warner would then launch a joint venture television network called The CW. It took the C from CBS and the W from Warner Brothers. Some shows from both networks made the jump over to this new network, like Supernatural and Smallville came over from the WB to the CW, and to this day, Warner Media owns half of the CW, with the other half Uh, belonging to CBS. So we can put that in the big old bucket of Warner assets. Okay, we're zeroing in on what Warner Media is today, but we still have a lot of ground to cover, and part of that ground means going over what has frequently been called one of the worst mergers of all time. So when we come back, it'll be time to get back online. But first, let's take another quick break. All right, time for yet another quick history lesson. And this time we're going to be talking about America Online, a.k.a. AOL. Now, I've done episodes about AOL as well, so we're going to get the summarized account of its history because, again, uh, extra bonkers, really. So America Online started out as an online service provider, or OSP, and technically was founded in 1989 in Dulles, Virginia. Now, the company grew out of a couple of earlier ventures that focused on connecting computers with each other through modems and phone lines. And when I say an online service provider, I'm really talking about something that's sort of a predecessor to the internet. Or rather, it existed while the internet existed, but it was something that was publicly accessible, and the internet typically wasn't, unless you were part of a, an a, you know, academic institution or research facility or something like that. So back in the day, OSPs had their own networks, their own contained, you know, closed off networks. So customers could use a modem and they would dial into an OSP and they would access various features. These typically included stuff like, you know, you could get news headlines or weather forecasts or contact lists, assuming that your contacts were, you know, using the same service you were using, and also some messaging services like email or early instant messages. But again, these tools only worked if the people you were chatting with were also on the same service you were on. There wasn't a lot of, uh, at least in the early days, there wasn't a lot of opportunities to send messages to someone who was on a different OSP. Uh, Some of these OSPs also had online games and a few other applications, And this was before the debut of the World Wide Web, so these were all kind of self-contained islands. Now, gradually, some of these islands made connections with one another, and then the web developed, and these OSPs began to create ways to access the internet at large. So what started off as a sort of walled-off kingdom now became a portal to the internet at large, and AOL was one of the big early players in the space. This was helped considerably by the fact that, at the time, telecommunications companies had to abide by restrictions that kept them from getting into the ISP business right away. So businesses like AOL became associated with the internet, so much so that, for some people, 
AOL and the internet were effectively synonymous. In the early days, AOL charged users on an hourly basis, so the more time you spent online, the more you had to pay. Toward the end of 1996, AOL swapped over from hourly rates to a flat monthly rate of $19.95, and the service grew very quickly after that. And it, it, when I say grew very quickly, I mean it was like gangbusters. Now, this was the heyday of the dot-com bubble, before the bubble would burst. Internet-based companies were proliferating and growing like crazy, at least on paper. AOL was flush with cash, and a sky-high stock price really was fueling this. In 1999, in China, during the 50th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China, which I know, sounds like I'm doing a non-sequitur, but stick with me. Anyway, at this event, the celebration of the founding of the People's Republic of China, there happened to be two people important to our story. The then head of Time Warner, Gerald M. Levin, happened to be sitting right in front of AOL co-founder Stephen Case, and the two got to chatting. Now, AOL was already kind of looking to make a big acquisition of a traditional company, with the goal being to form a company that would define future corporations, like the new media meets the old world. So Time Warner popped up as a possibility. I mean, Time Warner represented old media, film, TV, music, publishing. Meanwhile, over at Time Warner, Levin was in discussions about how to move the company into the next century. Levin and his team recognized that there was a digital revolution underway, and that it would be good to evolve Time Warner and stay ahead of this curve. One possibility early on was a merger between Time Warner and Yahoo!, but Yahoo's founder, Jerry Yang, ultimately decided not to pursue that opportunity. Case and Levin had a few more conversations with each other, and gradually the idea came about of merging Time Warner with AOL. Except, really it was more of an acquisition than a merger, because AOL's stock price was just so incredibly high, and Time Warner's wasn't. So this deal that they worked out stated that AOL would have 55% ownership of this new company, and Time Warner would have 45% ownership of it. The board would have an equal number of folks from directors on AOL's side and directors from Time Warner's side. Levin of Time Warner would become the CEO of the company, and Case from AOL would be the chairman of the board. And they kept this deal pretty darn quiet. In fact, a lot of people in senior leadership positions for both companies didn't find out about the merger until the companies announced it publicly in early 2000. In a way, this sort of played right into the overall narrative of Time Warner. After all, the Warner properties were mostly focused on media like TV, film, music, publishing. And, you know, that was it. And then AOL would bring new media into the mix, adding in yet another aspect to this already incredibly complex story. The combined value of the companies was estimated to be more than $350 billion, thus making this the largest merger up to that point. And while they began the merger in 2000, it would take a full year to complete. In the meantime, things took a very serious turn. Actually, it took a few turns, but one is one that I'm sure most of you are already familiar with, and that is the dot-com bubble, in fact, burst. 
that process was not instantaneous. I mean, it sounds like it is because you're talking about a bubble bursting and, you know, when that happens, it's an instant. That wasn't the case with this. This was more of a very slow, painful, dramatic decline in value. So the stock market value of the internet companies that were really going like crazy, it peaked in the early spring of 2000, like March of 2000. It was at its highest ever. But a confluence of events led to much of the market collapsing, with many companies going out of business as a result. Some of the problem was because of the overvaluation of companies that had yet to produce any revenue, and some of them had no business plan whatsoever. So essentially, these were companies that, again, they were incredibly valuable on paper because people were pouring money into it from an investment standpoint but they didn't really have any means of generating revenue. Uh, Some of this had to do with companies that were overextending themselves. They got flush with cash and then they started spending the cash like crazy, either in order to try and scale the business up as fast as possible or on, you know, luxuries like penthouse offices and daily massages and all the kind of stuff you hear about from the dot-com days. Some of it also had to do with economic recessions that happened in other parts of the world, such as Asia, that had an impact on the tech sector. Some of it had to do with proposed mergers that fell through, not Time Warner and AOL, that one did go through, but other mergers that were planned fell flat, and that hurt the market too, and thus stock prices began to fall. By May of 2000, AOL was having to make some pretty tough choices in order to stay on track with earnings in order to meet the requirements that were set by the merger that was already in progress. The market continued to go through a decline. Meanwhile, things were not going smoothly between the two companies. There was a serious clash of cultures between Time Warner and AOL. And then there were some dealings of a somewhat shady nature. So one day, Alec Klein, who was a reporter for the Washington Post, gets this anonymous tip from someone at AOL, and that leads Alec on this investigation. And that investigation uncovered that AOL had been misrepresenting its ad revenue numbers. Big no-no for a publicly traded company. I mean, that is fraud. So Klein publishes his story, which then prompted the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, and the Department of Justice, the good old DOJ, to investigate another acronym, AOL. That investigation eventually led to AOL being required to pay some really big fines, which is, you know, another big blow to a company that was seeing its stock price plummet, And it also had to post corrected past earnings. So in other words, it didn't just have to pay a fine. It had to publish earnings that that showed how they had fudged those numbers. This was not a great moment for the new AOL Time Warner, though it did give folks over on the Time Warner side a little bit of a boost because they suddenly saw that their part of the company was perhaps the more valuable piece. In the meantime... The terrorist attacks on the United States on September 11th, 2001, had obviously an enormous impact on all aspects of life in America, and that included business. It also exacerbated the market troubles for the dot-com industry, which continued to fall, and AOL, which had been in such a dominant position at the end of 1999, was in a very different state toward the end of 2001, just a year into the merger with Time Warner. 
Levin retired in December 2001. Case stayed on a bit longer, but ultimately decided to not run again for chairman of the board in 2003. He had received a pretty good deal of abuse from shareholders and leadership of both companies about the merger, about the falling stock price for the company, about the need to get things moving in a better direction. According to Ted Turner, who was once the largest shareholder of AOL Time Warner, he had continued to sit on the board of directors for a while. According to him, it cost him around 80% of his worth, which he said amounted to around $8 billion. Yikes. The executives on the Time Warner side were resentful, largely because AOL, which initially was seen as the juggernaut with huge momentum, was now viewed as a kind of anchor weighing down the rest of the company. The AOL Time Warner years had to be really hard ones for people at both companies. The period lasted for less than a decade, with the company announcing in 2009 that Time Warner, which remember, was effectively acquired back in 2000, uh, that it was going to spin off AOL as an independent company. So now the acquired company has is acting like the parent company. So when we talk about Warner Media... One property that does not come up is AOL. That, that is not part of Warner Media anymore. But we still have to talk about AOL because that merger was a transformative experience for both companies. I suspect a huge combination of things like culture clashes, the dot-com market collapsing, poor communication, uh, a failure to align the missions of both companies so that they supported one another. I think all of those are partly to blame for this mess. And the vision was to create the media company of the future, but the reality saw just chaos that did not work. AOL Time Warner was in a rough spot. And, you know, in 2002, it had reported a loss of $99 billion. Billion. That was a third of the company's value lost in a year. And at that point, it was the largest loss any company had ever reported in a single year. So there were a lot of executive shuffles there with leaders shifting into new roles or taking on joint responsibilities for both companies. And it was a very messy time. And one of those executives to try and hold things together only to ultimately resign from the company in 2002 was Bob Pittman, who today is the leader of iHeartMedia. Howdy, boss. Anyway, Pittman was one of several executives who really tried to align the companies together, but faced enormous hurdles along the way. And Pittman had a long history in media already. He was one of the co-founders of MTV back in the day, and so he had worked on the Time Warner side before the merger. Maybe one day I'll convince him to come on to the show and talk about his various experiences, because... I'm sure that guy's got some stories. He has seen it all. He's the head of a big media company today, co-founded MTV. He played an enormous part in the development of media in America over the last 30 years. So maybe I can get him on the show sometime. That brings us up to 2010, and we still have a lot more story to get through. Heck, we haven't even mentioned AT&T yet. (laughs) In our next installment, we'll learn where Time Warner would go next after parting ways with AOL and where Warner Media would come from and why AT&T, which currently holds Warner Media, is now looking to spin off the company so that it can merge with my old employer, Discovery Communications. So that'll be our episode on Monday next week, 
which is a holiday, so I'm going to have to get it recorded soon. Note to self. I promise, Tari. Anyway, that's it. If you have suggestions for topics you would like me to cover on future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 